On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. Funding for the E-Series is provided by the Dr. John A. Lusk Fund for Hospice and Palliative Care Education. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today we begin our next installment of the E-Series titled The State of Caregiving. This collection of E-Series episodes will guide listeners through conversations with local caregiving advocates to help us better understand what caregivers are facing, explore caregiver needs, and create lasting solutions. In this episode, join CEO Trent Cockrum as he welcomes Mark Hensley, Associate State Director for Community Outreach and Advocacy Triad Region with AARP North Carolina. Together, they launched this series with a discussion about the impact and strain of caregiving and the benefits of being an educated and informed caregiver. Prior to joining the AARP team in 2018, Mark was the Dementia Services Coordinator for the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Division of Aging and Adult Services, where he led efforts to implement North Carolina's first Alzheimer's state plan, including the development of dementia-capable communities across the state. Mark has over 25 years of experience with home and community-based services for older adults, state policy and legislation development, compliance monitoring, program development, and grants administration. On a personal note, Mark was the caregiver for both of his parents whom he lost to dementia. He holds a Master's of Arts degree from Appalachian State University and is a recent graduate of Class 28 with Leadership North Carolina. Let's listen in. Mark, it is so great to have you with me today. Um, You are quite an accomplished individual. Um, I think it's fair to say the way we got connected was through a mutual friend quite by happenstance, and I'm so glad uh, that we did because as Ryan mentioned, you are quite an accomplished individual who has a wealth of knowledge about caregiving, both on a very personal level, but then also on a policy and advocacy level too. Um, as we as we jump right in, you wrote an article um, which is just coming up, I believe, if not if not just recently published in September, I think, uh, for the North Carolina Journal of Medicine called "Caregivers: Essential Frontline Paid." Uh, and unpaid, exploring the differences, similarities, and needs of this important sector of community care. That's a mouthful. Um, But might you just sort of tell our listeners what this work was about, what prompted you to do it, and some of the things that you're hoping to spark interest in, um, not only through this discussion, but also through the North Carolina Journal of Medicine? Sure, Trent. So first of all, the North Carolina... um, uh, medical journal focuses on topics that often are also highlighted by the North Carolina Institute of Medicine. And I was part of a task force called North Carolina Serious Illness Task Force, where we explored all the issues around serious illness of all ages, all disparities. And, um, you know, out of that is a huge chapter around caregivers, particularly unpaid but also about the direct care workforce that we have that is paid in North Carolina. And so um, that work concluded a couple of years ago, they published, and in the pandemic, things took a huge shift. Um, Mm. 
we started to drive down the road and pass long-term care facilities that had signs up that said heroes work here. So for the first time really ever direct healthcare workers were being recognized as heroes in this global pandemic that we were having. But that also shone a light on the fact that a lot of people were thrown into unpaid caregiving during the pandemic and the needs of caregivers overall were really spotlighted in the pandemic. And this just started a whole conversation. So the Institute of Medicine came to me and sort of threw this topic at me and said, can you kind of unwind this? Because there's a lot of things here that are overlapping. Um, we want to understand the whys of, uh, of, of why there are, it's a lot of confusion. We want to know what are the similarities and what is the importance and what impact is the pandemic going to have on caregiving from a public policy standpoint? And so this article really dives into that. And um, I had a lot of surprises. Um, first of all, that, you know, when we talk about caregivers, there are formal and informal caregivers. Sure. Formal are what are also known as frontline essential workers. And when the pandemic, when the vaccine was available, the immediate response was frontline essential workers get those vaccine shots before anybody else. Right. All right. So now you can lump into this whole this whole caregiving network. You have the higher end professionals like anesthesiologists, RNs, nurse practitioners, and physicians. Um, then these direct care workers, the people that typically carry out um, uh, personal care for an individual, all the way down to toileting and bathing and wound care, um, there's a real problem in this country that they're not making a living wage often. And we'll get into more of that later. And then this huge backbone of the long-term care network is all the people that have loved ones, chosen family, and otherwise, that they're caring for it, no compensation, often while trying to balance work, family, and their own life. Right. I know one of the things that really struck me, uh, that your own organization, AARP, um, estimates that there are 53 million unpaid caregivers in this country, which equates to roughly one in five adults. I mean, that is... If you think about five people that are adults that you know, that means at least one of them is already in an potentially in an unpaid caregiving role, right? That's right. And this is this is an everybody issue, because as Rosalind Carter so famously stated, there are four types of people. Um, one type is a person, of course, that has been a caregiver. Next is a person who will become a caregiver certainly those who are currently caregivers. And the last one is those of us that will need a caregiver at some point in our lifespan. Mm -hmm. So this is an everybody issue. And if it weren't for these um, one in five people that providing unpaid care in the community, in their home, it would buckle our current healthcare system. The other piece about that statistic trend is that's right now. We need to be thinking about 20 years from now. Yeah, because in 20 years, I mean, if you think about the the sort of the, the lifespan of folks who were born in the post-World War II era, um, they span about a 30, 40 years 
sort of span, right? At least 30. Um, and so the oldest of them um, are already probably experiencing some services by an unpaid caregiver, likely a family member or son, daughter, maybe a spouse. But then you've got that, that younger segment for which there will be fewer caregivers. I think about myself, at, you know, I'm 47 years old. Um, my mother will be rapidly approaching into this, into this middle segment, right? Um, and so I think about that. But one of the things that I also think about a lot, and this comes on the heels of 25 years in, in healthcare, is that being an unpaid caregiver isn't just about the hands-on care that you provide. There's a lot more that goes into it, right? It's it's making sure that someone gets to their appointment on time. It's making sure that the, the grass is cut, that the house is in good repair. It could be um, all of that, plus the challenges of balancing work, life, children. I mean, is, is that sort of a reality for at least a portion of these 53 million people? Oh, absolutely. Um, it is rare that people can just choose to leave work. Uh, benefits as well as pay. And often you see kind of a sandwich generation. And these are typically mm -hmm. females. They are working full time. They're also at this point, probably they have children in high school or early college. Um, at the same time, they have an older parent or parents, both of them, or in-law or in-laws or both. Because, again, often the wife is turned to for that caregiving. And so, yes, it is not just balancing the job, but it's balancing those household tasks. Financial considerations are certainly part of the formula. Um, running errands, prescriptions, understanding Medicare, making sure that mom and dad don't get scammed because there's a lot of that going on. Think about all the passwords you have to have to pay your bills every month. And even though it's a lot faster now than writing checks, doing all of those activities of daily living, um, and then you get into personal care. If they need assistance with a bath or they need assistance dressing, washing clothes, all of that is doubled. So um, a couple of things about caregiving. Rarely is it fair or equitable, meaning mm -hmm. that you may have five siblings, but it may all fall on one or two, often one, for different reasons. They don't live close by. Um, they're just, this is not their thing. And not everyone is equipped to really do this role. Mm -hmm. um, and what I suggest to families is, you know, come together as a family unit. And if your brother's an accountant, he is, he is set to do the bills and maybe even the Medicare paperwork. Right. Um, so look at your strengths, divide up the tasks so that it's not on one person and also ask for help. You know, people say all the time, your friends and family say, was well, there anything I can do? If somebody says, I'll come mow the lawn, let them. Um, <laughs> sure. There's no shame in accepting help. Um, and, and there's a couple of other, you know, caveats about this, that it's not always your blood family. We know and have seen personally and professionally that a tragedy in family where caregiving suddenly happens is traumatic in its own way. Right. Um, and but it also happens with what we call chosen family. And this is especially true in the LGBTQIA community, which really came out of the AIDS epidemic where 
not everybody have a supportive family, but friends got around and supported friends. And mm. this is true today that um, chosen family and sharing the needs of one individual can be a group of friends responsibility. And that's another form of caregiving. And then you look at culturally, there are cultures that do not believe that facility care is an option. So they will do whatever they have to do to maintain their loved one in their home until they're passing. Sure. Often to their own detriment, I might add, to their own, to the detriment of their own health and well-being, right? Yeah. The sad thing is when you, you see a caregiver that is pushed to the extreme to the point that they end up hospitalized, institutionalized, or they lose their life prematurely, and the care recipient is still here. Mm-hmm. And what happens to them? So both people ending up in long-term care. That's that's what we've got to really think about is how do we not let this this turn into a crisis? Hi, friends. It's your host, Ryan Biagini. I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to subscribe and stay tuned to this podcast channel for exciting news and developments about how we support caregivers. As an organization, we are committed to advocating for those caring for others and creating innovative solutions to address the needs of caregivers. And now let's get back to the conversation. You know, Mark, one thing that really strikes me in our conversation is we're um, talking about the sandwich generation and uh, we're talking about uh, boomers uh, of of that generation that are growing older and the, and the different age brackets that um, exist within that population alone. And, and I think about that, re, that makes me think about sort of it as a generational crisis, right? The, the backfill um, of folks who are perhaps in mine and your generation um, is, is insufficient to meet the, the very, the very reality of this overlapping need that is now beginning to occur um, because we, we talked about about 15 or 20 years ago, this senior tsunami, um, which happened, but it never stopped because everybody kept rolling into the next bracket each and every year. Um, so that, that, that just make, that just reminds me of, of sort of this, this system where we know, um, both of us have worked in healthcare for a very long time, we know that we have an imperfect system. If we didn't know that before the last 20 months, we certainly know it now. Um, It's not a criticism of our system, it's just imperfect to address all the needs that we have. But but what I'm I'm thinking about are are the things that we're able to do, which we're beginning to talk about now, and sounds like you are with your um, North Carolina Medical Journal uh, article is beginning to address these gaps, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I just want to say that, you know, the, the imperfectness of our healthcare system and our service delivery system, we very quickly made modifications. Things like telehealth, absolutely del- delivery of prescription drugs. We b- made modifications very quickly, and now we need to be thinking about how are we going to transform the home and community-based supports for caregivers. And I'm going to kind of start off at the five thousand foot level and say, first of all, caregivers need to be empowered as advocates because they often 
are in medical appointments. They're being asked to make decisions. They're also not being heard. Um, I remember taking my mother to an optometrist and he checked her eyes, but he never acknowledged me and asked me anything. And, you know, that doctors often are recognized by older adults as having uh, whatever they say goes. Oh, sure. But now, but now our generation really starts to question. So as part of being an advocate, it's being educated on what is the, dis- the, the, the disability or the disease or what is your loved one dealing with and being educated enough to ask intelligent questions. Secondly, and, and, that, and I've touched on this, but about being educated, not just educated um, about the, their loved one and their condition, but being educated about the resources that are available in the community. I always like to give a plug for North Carolina 211. Um, You dial three digits and you can start a conversation with an individual about here are my problems, where do I go to get help? And speaking of help, the third thing is that caregivers need to give themselves permission to accept help. Um, Being vulnerable being willing to say, yes, I'm going to pay for someone to take care of mom this weekend so I can go uh, away with my, you know, my girlfriends that are, ha- we're having our once a year anniversary at the beach. Do that because it is self-care. And the biggest problem with unpaid caregivers is they are so focused on their loved one that their health deteriorates. They skip dental appointments, annual visits with their own physician because they're so, so focused. And, you know, when you what you just described, when you have someone who is of an advancing age themselves, who is providing care and they neglect themselves in the manner which you just described, which is completely real, it exacerbates an already potentially bad situation, if not if not make the problem even exponentially larger for for the sit for the healthcare system to be able to identify the gaps and and satisfy them responsibly right i mean that's just a big picture thought that immediately came in my head um so you know we may have touched on this a bit already but how do people find themselves in an unpaid caregiver role and i think i should add that a lot of people who say and this is my own experience, uh, who would say, well, I'm taking care of my mom or I'm taking care of my dad, may not necessarily identify readily as a caregiver because that's just what they identify as their responsibility. So how do people find themselves in caregiving situations? Um, you're right. The word caregiver has really only been around in our network for about 20 years. Um, and it's become more of a mainstream term. But most of all, the term that I like is we're all adult children of aging parents. Mm-hmm. And when you stop and think about that, that we're all aging and you begin to see changes. And it often happens over the holidays, which we're coming up on. Right. People get together. You see that mom's cooking's not as good as it used to be, that she's misplacing things repeating herself, but she said, how do people find themselves in an unpaid caregiver role? For most, it, it's by default. Um, you're the oldest mm-hmm. sibling. You're an only child. You live the closest 
or you have some background that, oh, you'd be the best person. And it's by necessity. Um, and so many times I've talked to people who just didn't know where, where to begin. For others, this is what they they're this is what they were meant to do in their life to be a caregiver. They considered almost like a divine walk, giving back. She raised me to 18, and now I'm going to spend 18 years caring for her. Um, and, and, you know, as I've already mentioned, fairness and equity is not always the case because family dynamics really play a lot into this. Um, there's estrangements. There's arguments over finances and property and money. Um, there's old wounds um, that, that rise up because of things that happened in the childhood. Families and, are complicated, right? <laughs> and things are complicated. And um, um, I hadn't mentioned this to you, but one of my favorite analogies is the seagull. Are you familiar with the seagull, Trent? I'm not. The seagull is this well-meaning relative, and they typically live over the state line. So in South Carolina or in Virginia, and the seagull calls periodically to check on, let's say, your mom. The seagull says one day, well, I'm going to come for a visit. I hear you're struggling. I can hear the stress in your voice. So the seagull gets in their big white car and they fly in from wherever, usually on a weekend. So you're now up early to cook your traditional Southern Sunday lunch. Mom is up early having to get dressed. She's asking lots of questions. Why am I up early? Why are you putting these clothes on me? Who's coming? She can't remember. You've told her five times. You're, you've cleaned the house. You want everything to look great. And in comes the seagull. Mm. The seagull comes in and, first of all, you know, kind of pecks around the house. They look at things. They look at prescription bottles. But the most of the time they're there, they're sitting in the living room with mom doing what they are very best at, talking about the past. Mm. Mom is in her element. She knew what she wore to her high school graduation. She remembers her wedding day. She doesn't know who the president is. Heck, she doesn't even know uh, what day of the week it is. But she's so happy to have the seagull sit and pay attention to her and talk about the old days. Meanwhile, you're in the kitchen. You're cooking the meal. You put it out. You bring everybody in. You eat. And then the seagull gets up after dessert and puts her big white wing around you and says, Honey, I don't know why you're so stressed out. Your mama seems just fine to me. And then the seagull poops all over your house and, your, and what you've been doing as a caregiver. They get back in their big white car and they go back home. That is the seagull, a well-intentioned relative that swoops in. And the other one is the California daughter syndrome. And this yeah, is that one I'm one. very familiar with. Yeah. And this is that that child that left, went to college, hasn't been home, typically lives on the West Coast. And when things get to be, you need to call in the family. That relative, and it's typically, you know, in this scenario, it's a daughter, but the the California daughter comes in and has unresolved issues with mom or dad, and they say to the doctor, do whatever you can to keep them alive for as long as possible. And this also causes a lot of bickering among, especially the one, the caregiver who's tired, and it's the evening of life, and at the evening of life, there is relief for not just the care recipient, but the primary caregiver. Sure. But this one sibling does not have resolved issues with mom or dad, and they want them to stay alive so they can 
have one more moment with them before they pass. And, and I might add that, you know, from a healthcare provider's perspective, that that is as frustrating for the folks who are immediately involved as it is um, for the healthcare provider, because it oftentimes leads us, leaves us with this disconnected sort of um, series of events, if not, if not um, open-ended questions, because we thought we had satisfied, you know, any number of things on the front end, but now suddenly we're re we're we're re uh, reevaluating all of these measures all over again for what we may know. And the person who is immediately involved in the individual's care may know really provide no greater impact for the patient, for the person who is receiving the care, which is what really this is all about. Um, It's about the person who is in the room, not, all of the people who are around them, they have a role for sure. I don't want to minimize that at all, but our primary responsibility is to help is for the health and well-being of the individual. And let's take care of the caregiver too. But when we upend it all, it's really of no, of no benefit to anybody. Thank you for joining us for part one of our discussion, the state of caregiving. Join us next time as we conclude this conversation with Trent and Mark about the impact and strain of caregiving and the benefits of being an educated and informed caregiver. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.